glorious Father, holy God. Our present world depicts the fruit of sin and brokenness. Everywhere we look, we see destruction, we see distrust, we see despair. The harder we try to fix things, the worse it seems to get. I'm so grateful that before creation was, you knew all of this. Before you created anything, you determined to restore, to reconcile, to renew. As we begin a journey today through this precious letter, through your vessel, Paul, to the people of Ephesus, Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to rejoice in your cosmic reconciliation. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This world will not always be as it is today. This world will not always struggle with conflict, hostility, and loss. You have already accomplished the triumph. Now you are patiently, compassionately fulfilling your plan. I pray that the truths of your revelation will heal our wounds I pray that these glorious themes will make our hearts glad. I pray that the great hope on display will fuel our worship. Give us a passionate desire to embrace your promises. Direct our eyes toward your beautiful glory. Enable us to live your gospel by your power as a witness. Begin a great work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we begin a journey through this brief epistle or letter to the Ephesians. It's been described as a rare jewel, a beautiful jewel. As light is reflected through a prism It's been said that Ephesians refracts the glory of God, the grace of God. It was written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by God himself. And while he is responsible for writing almost half of the New Testament, this letter is a little bit different than the normal letter that Paul wrote. Usually, when Paul wrote a letter, he wrote it to a specific congregation, and he had specific problems or issues in mind that he was seeking to correct or speak to. That's not the case with this letter to the Ephesians. This letter to the Ephesians is a general letter. It's a very uplifting and encouraging letter, and it's divided into basically two parts. Two halves, if you will, chapters 1 through 3 and then chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3 is indicative. All of the things said in those chapters are pointing toward the explanation of the gospel. What God has done for us, in us, through us. And then chapters 4 through 6, we see the gospel applied. These are imperatives that we will find in the second half of the book where God tells us because of what he's done for us and in us, these are the things he now expects 
to see in us. Within these two sections, these two broad sections, if you will, we find a plethora of themes and theological truth that would keep us busy for a long, long time. I expect that we're going to spend about five months in this book. We could spend a lot longer. We could go through it rather quickly. And today, in fact, we are going to breeze through it from a high level pass and kind of overlook the themes. I think this will serve us well in the coming days. It was primarily, primarily written to all the churches in the area around Ephesus, all of Southwest Asia Minor, if you will. Ephesus is in what we know as modern Turkey today. And uh, so all the area around that, all those churches had, uh, were influenced by what was going on in Ephesus. They were influenced by the Apostle Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. So he's writing to all of them these general themes. Ephesus was a city, a significant city of the time, had a population of about 200 to 250,000 people. It's called the mother, mother city of Asia. It was the largest trading center in Western Asia Minor. You see, they had major land and sea routes, travel routes, trade routes, all seemed to converge there in Ephesus. So it was a very important city. It's also very religious or was very religious. It was the guardian of the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana. This temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. And um, everything, everything there in the area had or felt the influence of this cult or this false religion. The temple served as the primary banking institution of the city. Uh, Artemis' image was on all the coins. The holidays, festivals, games were all held in her honor on numerous occasions throughout the year. The silversmith Demetrius in Acts 19.27 said that she, that is Artemis, was worshipped throughout the province of Asia and even the world. Paul preached to Ephesus. We know for two years, some estimate as long as three years that he was ministering uh, to the Ephesians. The scripture says in Acts 19.10 and 19.26 that all the Jews and Gentiles who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's a pretty incredible testimony for Paul's ministry there. As he preached faithfully God's word that went out and all the people seemingly heard the truth. We know Paul did miracles there. He cast out demons and the gospel had a great impact upon many people. We're told that there were people who formerly were sorcerers or engaged in sorcery, that they were converted, they were transformed, and they burned their materials. They burned scrolls numbering or worth about 50,000 drachmas, which would be the essential of uh, 50,000 normal craftsman wages, days, day of wages for a craftsman was one drachma. So 50,000 days worth of wages for a skilled craftsman. We know that anger and violence broke out there and that Paul was almost sucked into this and his disciples kind of pulled him back, kept him at bay. 
kept him protected, but it got very contentious as the gospel was going out. When you've got uh, an entire city, you've got an entire area that's being impacted by the economic influence of a religious practice, and when the gospel came in and began to undermine that, began to threaten that, then tensions began to rise, and people became upset by it. And so there was a great deal of anger up rising that took place. Many believe this letter was written near the end of Paul's life, that he was in a Roman jail right prior to him being martyred for the gospel when he wrote this letter. This makes sense to me because of the nature of the letter itself. We think back to Paul's conversion. It's a remarkable story, is it not? Most of you in this room know what happened with Paul. He was raised, born and raised a Jew, raised in Jerusalem. He was uh, trained strictly according to the law of the Jews. He was fiercely devoted to God. And when the, the gospel appeared, when Christ ascended into heaven and the disciples began to preach this gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Paul was incensed and he was con convinced that he was serving God as he persecuted Christians. So he, Paul was involved in hunting them down, arresting them, binding them, even murdering some, we are led to believe. And we know that he was on the way to Damascus to hunt down more Christians when he was accosted by God on the way. Acts 22.6 says about noon, these are Paul's own words, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. Verse 7 says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you'll remember he said, who are you? Who are you who's speaking? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Why are you doing this? That, of course, was the moment that Paul had his thoughts, his heart changed. He was taken on into Damascus where God sent a man named Ananias. Acts 9.15 says, go, he's speaking to Ananias, go for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name among the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then in chapter 22, 12 through 16, here's Paul's account as he's testifying, giving his witness of his conversion. He said, In one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers anointed or appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And suffer, Paul did indeed suffer. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 gives us uh, a long list as Paul is making his case for his credibility as an apostle. He talks about all the suffering, all the abuse, all the persecution that he encountered for the gospel. Many, if they were in prison at this point, would have spent that time bemoaning the fact that they were in prison, bemoaning the conditions that they were suffering in. But I believe that Paul, as he's there and taking turn about sharing the gospel with those Roman guards that were chained to him every day, 
who were uh, powerless to change any of that, doing their job. They were receiving the gospel constantly. But I think in the midst of that, rather than bemoaning the situation that he found himself in, the fact that he was in jail for the gospel, Paul began to rehearse and think about the themes of the gospel, how God had had encountered him on that path to Damascus. God could have left him alone and just simply judged him, but he didn't. He called him out and he used him in extraordinary fashion to carry out the gospel under incredible circumstances. I think that's the condition that we find Paul in when he's writing this letter to the Ephesians. He spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere else in his ministry. And so they were near and dear to his heart. If you read Acts chapter 19, you see him, or chapter 20, you see him bidding farewell to the elders of Ephesus. And they fell on each other and wept as they parted company and went their own way. They had a special place in Paul's heart. And the gospel had an incredible place in Paul's heart. And so he began to rehearse these themes and wrote these things to encourage those people as they stood for Christ in that area. He laid out God's plan for the church and his desire to get glory through the church. It's profitable for us to consider the whole letter today with this high-level pass. And then we're going to drill deeper over coming weeks And our high-level pass will help us be more effective as we drill deeper. So as I told you, the letter is divided into two parts, section one or chapters one through three, what God has done. The gospel is explained. Chapter two or section two is chapters four through six, what God commands. The gospel is applied. And then there are two additional themes I think we'll speak about today. What God forbids and what God wants. So we're going to cover those four, four sections today. And we'll do it quickly. So you're going to have to listen fast. I'm going to try to speak fast. And we'll move through it. Limber up your fingers. You may want to turn some pages. And that's all right. I want you to get the feel for this letter. It's a short letter. If you were to sit down and begin reading, it would take you maybe, if you're an average reader, maybe 20 minutes to read through all six chapters. If you're a little slower, maybe 25 to 30. If you can feed, read fast, like James here, you might read it in 10 minutes. I don't know. But uh, I would encourage you over the coming weeks to read it through from cover to cover. Take one day out of each week and make Ephesians the focus of your devotion and just read it through from beginning to end and let it begin to speak to you. So let's talk through these chapters very quickly this morning and give you a high level pass of what's taking place, what we can expect to dive into in the coming weeks. Chapter one begins obviously with a greeting as Paul is always habitually does. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Well, what a will it was. What, what a, uh, a, a plan that God had for this man's life, for him to be raised in the environment he was, prepared to be a Pharisee among Pharisees. And then as he began to, uh, he became so impassioned for what he believed, what he thought he believed, that he was convinced he was right. And he began persecuting He began persecuting the church that he would ultimately begin advocating for. What an incredible story that he has. To the saints who are in Ephesus. To the saints who are in Ephesus. Saints is not one of those words that gets um, 
identified in some special way. We think of some kind of heavenly creature, right? We think of someone that's, uh, we kind of think of angels, don't we? Kind of a mixture of angels that we, uh, when we think of the word saint. But anyone who is in Christ by his grace, covered with his blood, is a saint, is a saint, set apart by the grace and for the glory of God. Grace and peace to you from God. So he gives us this pretty standard greeting that is in itself a message to all of us. And then he moves into the spiritual blessings available to us in Christ. Praise to God who's chose, who chose us and predestined us to be redeemed. We're going to spend some time on this because it's one of those things that has been neglected throughout the uh, church age, particularly the modern church age, I think, so much that we're going to spend some time unpacking that. You're going to find it to be a consistent theme throughout this letter, and it's a consistent theme throughout the entire New Testament. God's choosing and predestining us it's one of those things that uh, if you're raised in a typical Baptist background, you may be a little uncomfortable. You may squirm a little bit. But I assure you that it's all biblical. It's all biblical. It's there. So it's important that we understand what it means when it's there, right? What's it talking about? Lots of people have spent a lot of time trying to twist themselves and convert themselves and make, make themselves say that it's one thing because they can live with that definition, but they can't live with the plain definition. So we're going to try to unpack that and understand it as God intends for us to do so. In Him, believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So right out of the gate in chapters, uh, in this first chapter, we see the Trinity on display. We see the Father, the Father choosing, predestining. We see the Son, the Beloved, the one through whom this, uh, this gospel is uh, accomplished and achieved. And then we see the Spirit who is the one that's responsible for applying the gospel. And then he concludes this chapter with thanksgiving and prayer. He says, I don't cease to give thanks for you. I'm praying for you that you have wisdom and revelation. I'm praying that you may know what is your hope. I'm praying that you may know the riches of your inheritance, praying that you may know the great power that Christ is head over all things, head over all things. All things are under him and he is given to the church as the church's head. Chapter two, we see here that we are made alive by grace through faith. We were all dead in sin. And dead means just exactly what it says, dead. Spiritually dead, no life at all. There is no life apart from God. No life apart from Christ working his life in us. Dead in our trespass and sins. But God made us alive through Christ. He reveals his grace and ends our boasting. One of the reasons that these doctrines that are contained in Ephesians here so profusely are important is because it protects us from wanting to horn in and take credit for what is not ours to take credit for. Thinking that we have some something to do with our own salvation. Thinking that our own efforts, our own works, our own understanding or whatever it may be can contribute anything to the gospel. The truth is the only thing, the absolute only thing that we bring to the gospel is our sin, which is the need for the gospel in the first place, right? 
God has made us alive through Christ and he reveals his grace through this, this beautiful work that he does in us and ends our boasting, takes away any ability that we have to boast that we had anything to do with it. We are one in Christ. We were without God. Now we are brought near through Christ's blood, brought near to God again. Jewish and Gentile, which is just another way of saying all peoples, all peoples. There's no, there's no exception here. The Jews don't have a, a special place of being closer to God. Gentiles are not unique in the fact that we all come through the blood, the body of Christ. We come to God and we're all made one. There's no distinctions, no distinctions. We have access in one spirit to the Father. They are now one whole building in which God lives by his spirit. How important is that for us? It's important uh, for us in any normal circumstance, but given who we are, coming together as a new body of Christ, two congregations coming together, how important for it is for us to remind ourselves and to be encouraged in the fact that we are one. We are one in Christ Jesus. This is going to be a major theme throughout the letter. Chapter 3, we see the mystery of the gospel revealed. For this reason, I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ, made a steward of the gospel, that is a manager, an overseer, someone who has this resource and has a responsibility to see that it's carried out as God intends for it to be. Gentiles are made sharers in the gospel, in this promise through Christ. Paul says it's not a mistake that he suffers. We would, uh, we've been studying on Sunday mornings, the discipleship class through suffering. We've learned that suffering is as much a part of the Christian life as anything. That God uses it in profound ways for his own glory and for our edification, our sanctification. Paul says it's not a mistake that he suffered for the gospel. In fact, he says it was God's plan. We heard it in Acts chapter 9 as God spoke to Ananias. You need to go to him for I intend for him to suffer for my name's sake. It was God's plan, Paul says, for me to suffer in delivering the gospel. And this in itself manifests God's wisdom to all creation. The creation sees this witness, sees this testimony as we bear in our bodies the difficulty, the suffering of this life because we choose to follow Christ. And then again, we see another wonderful prayer that Paul includes in this letter. Prayer for strength, for spiritual strength. I pray for your strengthening by the Spirit. I pray for your grasp of Christ's love that you will be filled with God. Uh, may God be glorified forever and ever. So in these chapters, the first three chapters, we note these important themes. One, God elects, God chooses those whom he calls to himself. God unites people. He makes us one. God is gracious. He is gracious. God gives faith. He gives faith. It is a gift from God for us to trust and believe in him. We see in these chapters a beautiful portrait of unity. A beautiful portrait of unity. It's based on the grace of God alone. Now listen. When, when people emphasize their own religious works or abilities 
division always follows. When we, when we begin to focus too much on what we do or think we do, division will always follow. Why? Because we start seeing these discrepancies between ourselves. We start seeing one person at this level and another person at a lower level. We start appraising each other. But when God's grace is emphasized, our abilities, our, our inclinations, our preferences, all of these things are crucified with Christ and we become unified. We do not have unity because we are the same. In fact, Christianity, according to the scripture, Christianity is that which displays great unity among diversity. And this in itself is an incredible testimony to the world. Christ unifies us when everything else divides us. Now think about it. Christ unifies us when everything else divides us. We live in a world that is so focused on division, right? We are dividing everything. It's gender, race, economic status, educational status, Geographic location, do you live in the north, the west, the south? All these things divide us, experience, our preferences. The world is trying to break us down into all of these factions. And when you break everything down into factions, then you get all these hostilities and, and uh, stresses going on, and you have conflict. But this is not the gospel. In these three chapters, unity is presented as fact. In Christ, we're unified. Think about it. We're in Christ. We're in him. We are his body. I want to ask you a question. This is a very simple question. Think of it practically this morning. Wherever you sit, there is a boundary to your, your body, right? I mean, you've got, you got a body there. You're, you're fixed in that. How, how can you take, can you take your arm off or take some fingers off and lay them somewhere else, put them somewhere else in this auditorium away from you? Is there anything you can do to divide your body? Well, you could, but you couldn't survive it, could you? And yet, this is what's going on in Christian life in many churches is that we spend all this time dividing and we wonder why the church is anemic. Because we've turned the church into just some other secular organization that we can compartmentalize groups of people or individuals rather than follow what God says. God says we're a body. The body can't be divided. The body is one. Different parts, but all working together as one. Unity is presented as a fact. God has redeemed us and made us one. In the last three chapters... So in the first three, he's making this case that we are one body. It's established in Christ. In the last three chapters, he will present unity as a daily goal. It's what we pursue. It's how we live our lives. It's how we consciously interact with one another. It's how we pray. It's how we serve. It's how we worship as one. We pursue it as a goal, which means we have to push back and war against those things that would try to infringe and separate, right? If I walked up to you, you're sitting there in your physical body this morning. If I walked up to you with a big, long, sharp saber and said, I'm going to dice you up today, would you permit that? Anybody here that would just say, okay, go at it, go for it. 
How you would resist that, would you not? You would defend against that. You would try to stop that. And yet, when it comes to the body of Christ, very often we give up defending that. We give up protecting the division of the body. Sometimes we even contribute to the division of the body. So, unity is something we must live out and work toward. And we are able to do this because of what God has done in us. He has indwelt us in his spirit and he has given us everything we need to live up to this. It's not up to your own physical efforts. It's dependent upon him and him alone. So now let's move. Chapters four through six, what God commands us to do, we see the gospel applied. Chapter four, we've again, unity in the body of Christ. Keep the unity by the spirit by your new lives in Christ. He has given every one of us gifts for building us up to maturity. Sanctifying each individual and sanctifying the church body, if you will. Helping us mature into fullness. To be conformed to the image of Christ. Individually and as a body. Corporately. To be fully conformed to the image of Christ, these gifts unify believers as they work in love through Christ. Then he moves into the new life. What is this new life? What's the, what are the implications for this new life in, as we live daily? We are no longer to live as godless, worldly people. In Christ, we put off the old self. We put on the new self. It's a new wardrobe, right? We put off the old self. We put on the new self. What does this look like? Well, he says, you should put off things like, you should not lie. You should not be angry with one another. You must share. You don't tear others down. We seek to build others up. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by malice. Build each other up with kindness with compassion, with forgiveness. Like Christ has done in us and for us, we are to imitate him. We walk in the new life. We follow the pattern of Christ. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ, to walk in the steps that he has laid out for us. Chapter five, walk in love. Imitate God who is love. We can love because he first loves us, right? John says this. Do not partner with those who lie and advocate for immorality. Don't partner with darkness. Be careful how you live and take advantage of the time. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There are distinct, there are distinct patterns of authority and submission to observe in life, particularly in Christian life. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and died for it. Chapter 6, children and parents. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, train your children in Christ. Don't let children be the parent. You be the parent. There is a pattern of authority and submission here. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Masters, treat your slaves as they treat you with respect and fear. Because all of us have the same master, ultimately, who shows no favoritism. Then he talks about 
putting on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you can stand at the end, that you can persevere in the faith. Pray that the gospel will go forth in clarity and power. Now, in these chapters, we note these clear imperatives. Live a life worthy of the calling that God has extended to us. Build others up, not tear them down. Make the most of the times. Make the most of the opportunity that God has given us. Life is short, isn't it? Life in this world doesn't last but just a moment, a fleeting moment, like a vapor, Scripture says. So take advantage of the opportunity in Christ because there are eternal ramifications involved. Take and make the most of every opportunity. Persevere to the end and rest in the sovereignty of God. Rest in the sovereignty of God. So now let's circle back these last two things. What does God forbid and what does God want? What does God forbid and what does God want? What does God forbid? How does the gospel distinguish us? He says clearly that the Christian life has unity as a huge theme. But chapter 5 warns us against a particular unity, and that is unity in darkness, unity with those who seek out immorality or sin as a way of life. We are instructed to expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Now, what does this mean? We all know that, right? Pastor, why do we need to focus on that? We're all here today. We understand that expectation. But we don't go out and identify with people who are living in darkness. Well, I think it's much more nuanced than that, that Yes, there is that, those obvious things, but there's also things inside the body of Christ that we must be aware of. You see, we have difficulty in the body. Diversity is not the church's chief end for the sake of diversity. I mean, we don't seek to be, a, we wouldn't go out and try to get as many diverse kinds of people in here just to be able to say we're a diverse congregation. And if you if you carry that out, we don't tolerate things in the church just to say that we've got a certain number of church or a certain kind of people in the church, right? Diversity is not tolerating things like greed or impurity or impropriety or immorality. And most of us here today would probably agree that we shouldn't do this. But the temptation is often very subtle, isn't it? We know someone. You know, I know that guy. I know that guy. He doesn't mean anything by what he did. He doesn't really mean what you think he meant when he did or he didn't do what you think he did or didn't do. So we try to explain it away, don't we? We try to justify sin. I think this is what he's getting at is that we, we don't, we don't uh, partner with darkness or with these attitudes that are bent toward darkness in order to try to help the body of Christ thrive. It doesn't get us there. In fact, it hurts or it harms the body of Christ. We casually dismiss sin when committed by someone that is close to us, and we might see it differently when it's someone that we don't have a special relationship with, right? So that's why all must be treated in the same vein. Churches have pushed back or ignored accountability and discipline for years. All for these reasons. 
We sell out, we sell our soul to grow at any cost. If we stand against this sin, then it's going to cost us people. So we tolerate the sin or we just become lazy. I imagine that's probably what was going on in Corinth when they had a man that was sleeping with his, uh, with his stepmother. And they probably said, well, you know, he's a good teacher. <laughs> he's a good teacher. And, and basically, he's a good guy. Yeah, okay, he's got this one area where he needs some work. And Paul was incensed by this when he wrote to them, right? He said, that guy needs to go, and he needs to go now. Because you can't tolerate sin in the body of Christ. So we can become lazy or apathetic and lose sight of what we are, whose we are, and what our responsibility is. Paul says this is not the path we should follow. That we don't, we don't practice unity. We don't practice unity in order or in a way that might compromise the purity of Christ's body. Let there be no foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place. Walk as children of light. Be distinct from darkness, not like darkness. And then what does God want? Well, you heard, you heard um, Tommy read it in the first chapter there three times. Three times in those uh, first 14 verses, particularly verses 3 through 14, we hear God tell us what he wants, what his purpose is. What? What was it? His glory. The praise of his glory. Three times. This is God's ultimate purpose. His glory to shine. We spent a lot of time talking about that as a church last year. It's for the glory of God. And Paul touts this purpose here. To the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 6. Verse 12. To the praise of his glory. Verse 14. To the praise of his glory. Also, chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. Listen, see if you can pick it up here. Let me read this. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He doesn't say God's glory there, but he says that we should not boast. So... He's putting it back in its right priority, right? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, listen, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God who create, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in, heavenly, in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering you for, which is for your, which is your glory. 
And in 3, verses 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So God's plan, God's purpose in this letter, Paul says. And it seems fitting to me that Paul is at the end of his road. He's at the end of his ministry. He knows this time he's not walking away from prison. He's going to die. And so he's still going to write 2 Timothy, his letter to Timothy, last letter to Timothy. But this letter to Ephesians, I think, is kind of Paul's last sermon if you will. And he sends it to the church in Ephesus, to the believers that he spent all that time with, to the surrounding area, to the churches from all around Ephesus that were coming, that intersected with his life there and that he was probably mindful of. And all the way down through the ages to us here today at Milton Community Church. If I could preach one sermon, Paul says, one final sermon to the church, the body of Christ, this is what I would say. I think that's the nature of this letter. That's his intent. To understand the gospel, understand it clearly, all of its indicatives, all of its, what God has done, all of the truth of what God has been able to do in us and for us, and then how that's applied, how we're to live it day by day so that God is glorified and honored. So, what should we do with this introduction this morning? Are you, are you aware of those indicatives? Uh, are you, is the gospel, does the gospel, is it applied to you? Do you know? Do you know these truths personally? Are they head knowledge or have they changed you from the inside out? Have they made you, transformed you into something different? Are you still following the course of this world? You find yourself still passionate for the things of this world. Or you find your heart has been warmed toward the things of the gospel. You get excited about the gospel or do you go, oh, I can't believe we're going to keep talking about this. Can't we get on to something else? Listen, there is nothing else. Paul, Paul's proof of that, right? He's at the end of his life, his ministry. And he says, oh, by the way, one more thing. Can I talk to you about the gospel? Oh, come on, Paul. Haven't we been down this path before? For the child of God, the person who knows Christ, this is the greatest subject in all the world. I feel blessed. I get to preach it every week. Have you believed the gospel and repented of sin? Is your trust in Christ alone for forgiveness and eternal life? If your answer is no, if your answer is I'm not sure, if your answer is confusion, then I would say let's have a conversation. Come and let's talk. We can do it right here after we finish today. You can call me and come anytime during the week. I'm glad to sit down. You can talk to an elder. I'm sure they would love the opportunity to have a conversation with you. If you profess to follow Christ today, how are you living daily? Are you walking in the light or are you walking in unity with darkness?
Eventually, this is going to cause a problem in your life because the two are not intended to be together. So it's going to create, it's going to create some difficulty in your life if you're walking in light and darkness in association. Are you practicing impurity or reflecting the glory of God? Is there something in your life that causes you to stumble on a regular, repeating way? What is it? We all have struggles. Are you walking in unity with darkness in any way? Jesus finished work and his indwelling spirit enable us, equip us, empower us to break free from these things, to live in liberty, to live in joy, to live in purity, to live in light. Not perfectly yet, but aspiring for perfection daily. Ask him to change the desires and pursuits of your heart. Ask him to empower you to overcome whatever it is that's causing you to stumble. Church, there is so much richness and encouragement in Ephesians. I, wanna, I want to repeat what I challenged you with earlier. Let us read, let us meditate, let us pray, and let us apply all this precious truth as we make our way through it. Let's savor it. We're going through it deliberately over a period of months rather than blowing through it in a four-week topical series for a reason, that we might savor it, that we might, that we might strain out all the nutrients that can change us and conform us to Christ. Commit to reading it through weekly as a journey, as a part of your devotion. And let us encourage one another. Let us encourage one another, pray for one another that Ephesians might describe us. If not now, certainly as we move through it together. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for your grace and your mercy. Uh, often we get caught up in the things of this world and we lose sight of just this, the great significance of your grace for us. It's easy for us to take things for granted. We often live without uh, difficulty. We live with ample provision in so many ways and these things can camouflage. They can hide our eyes to the truth. I pray that um, uh, your gospel might reveal truth to us, that we might um, have our taste buds changed uh, to savor it with great joy, with, uh, in great depth for your glory and for our sanctification. For the sake, Lord, of all people that we come in contact with, and Lord, for the glory that is yours for all of eternity. That we might live each and every day, Lord, carefully, circumspectly, understanding that all that we do and say is a reflection of who you are in us. Knowing that we have your spirit to guide us, to empower us, Lord, to protect us, to illumine our minds. Lord, we have every tool available to us to live your truths in a glorious fashion. So we pray as we study this 
precious letter together that you will give us uh, the ability to understand and hearts that are willing to receive, Lord, and apply your truths with faithfulness and with trust in you. And that you will make us the church that Paul describes here in this writing, that we might, uh, Lord, be this incredible um, prism refracting your grace into this community in which we live. We know you can. We know you will. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.